Chapter twenty five of Henry Dunbar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Whitley. Henry Dunbar by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter twenty five. After the wedding. The banker and the man who was called the major talked to each other earnestly enough throughout the short drive between Lisford Churchyard and Maudsley Abbey, but they spoke in low confidential whispers, and their conversation was interlarded by all manner of strange phrases. The queer outlandish words were Hindostani, no doubt, and were by no means easy to comprehend. As the carriage drove up to the grand entrance of the Abbey, the stranger looked out through the mud-spattered window. "'A fine place!' he exclaimed. "'A splendid place!' "'What am I to call you here?' muttered Mr. Dunbar, as he got out of the carriage. "'You may call me anything, as long as you do not call me when the soup is cold. I've a two-pair back in the neighbourhood of St. Martin's Lane, and I'm known there as Mr. Vavasour, but I'm not particular to a shade. Call me anything that begins with a V. It's as well to stick to one initial, on account of one's linen.' From the very small amount of linen exhibited in the Major's toilette, a malicious person might have imagined that such a thing as a shirt was a luxury not included in that gentleman's wardrobe. "'Call me Vernon,' he said. "'Vernon is a good name. You may as well call me Major Vernon. My friends at the corner—not the Piccadilly corner, but the corner of the waste-ground at the back of Field Lane—have done me the honour to give me the rank of Major.' and I don't see why I shouldn't retain the distinction. My proclivities are entirely aristocratic. I have no power of assimilation with the canaille. This is the sort of thing that suits me. Here I am in my element. Mr. Dunbar had led his shabby acquaintance into the low tapestried room in which he usually sat. The Major rubbed his hands with a gesture of enjoyment as he looked at the evidences of wealth that were heedlessly scattered about the apartment. He gave a long sigh of satisfaction, as he dropped with a sudden plump upon the spring cushion of an easy chair on one side of the fireplace. "'Now listen to me,' said Mr. Dunbar. "'I can't afford to talk to you this morning. I have other duties to perform. When they're over, I'll come and talk to you. In the meantime, you may sit here as long as you like, and have what you please to eat or drink.' "'Well, I don't mind the wing of a fowl and a bottle of burgundy. "'It's a long time since I've tasted burgundy Chambertin or Clos de Vaugeau at twelve bob a bottle. "'That's the sort of tipple I rather flatter myself, eh?' Henry Dunbar drew himself up with a slight shudder, as if repelled and disgusted by the man's vulgarity. "'What do you want of me?' he asked. "'Remember that I am waited for.' I am quite ready to serve you for the sake of old Landsign. Yes, answered the Major with a sneer. It's so pleasant to remember old Langsyne. Well, asked Mr. Dunbar impatiently, what is it you want of me? A bottle of Burgundy, the best you have in your cellar. Something to eat, and that which a poor man generally asks of his rich friends, his fortunate friends. Money! You shall not find me illiberal towards you. I'll come back by and by and write you a cheque. You'll make it a thumping one. 
i'll make it as much as you want that's the sort of thing there always was something princely and magnificent about you mr dunbar you shall not have any reason to complain answered the banker very coldly you'll send me the lunch yes you can hold your tongue i suppose you won't talk to the servant who waits upon you has your friend the manners of a gentleman or has he not hasn't he had the eminent advantage of a collegiate education i may say a prolonged course of collegiate study but look here since you're so afraid of my putting my foot in it suppose i go back to lisford now and i can return to you to-night after dark our business will keep i want a long talk and a quiet talk but i must suit my convenience to yours it's the duty of the poor dependent to wait upon the pleasure of his patron exclaimed major vernon in the studied tones of the villain in a melodrama henry dunbar gave a sigh of relief yes that will be much better he said i can talk to you comfortably after dinner Tita then old boy oh reservoir as we say in the classics major vernon extended a brawny hand of rather doubtful purity the millionaire touched the broad palm with the tips of his gloved fingers good-bye he said i shall expect you at nine o'clock you know your way out he opened the door as he spoke and pointed through a vista of two or three adjoining rooms to the hall it was rather a broad hint the major pulled the poodle collar still higher above his ears and went out with only his nose exposed to the influence of the atmosphere henry dunbar shut the door and walked to one of the windows he leant his forehead against the glass and looked out watching the tall figure of the major as he walked rapidly along the broad carriage drive that skirted the lawn the banker watched his shabby acquaintance until major vernon was quite out of sight then he went back to the fireplace dropped heavily into his chair and gave a long groan it was not a sigh it was a groan a groan that seemed to come from a bosom that was rent by all the agony of despair this decides it he muttered to himself yes this decides it i've seen it for a long time coming to a crisis but this settles everything he got up passed his hand across his forehead and over his eyelids like a man who has just been awakened from a long sleep and then went to play his part in the grand business of the day there is a very wide difference between the feelings of the poor adventurer who by some lucky accident is enabled to pounce upon a rich friend and the sentiments of the wealthy victim who is pounced upon nothing could present a stronger contrast than the manner of henry dunbar the banker and the gentleman who had elected to be called major vernon whereas mr dunbar seemed plunged into the uttermost depths of despair by the sudden appearance of his old acquaintance the worthy major exhibited a delight that was almost uproarious in its manifestation it was not until he found himself in a very lonely part of the park where there were no other witnesses than the timid deer lurking here and there under the poor shelter of a clump of leafless elms it was not till major vernon felt himself quite alone 
that he gave way to the full exuberance of his spirits. "'It's a guild mine!' he cried, rubbing his hands. "'It's a regular California!' He executed a grim caper in his delight, and the scared deer fled away from the neighbourhood of his path. Perhaps they took him for some modern gnome, dancing wild dances in the wet woodland. He laughed aloud with a hollow, fiendish-sounding laugh, and then clapped his hands together, till the noise of his brawny palms echoed in the rustic silence. "'Henry Dunbar!' he said to himself. "'Henry Dunbar! He'll be a milch cow! Nothing but a milch cow! If—' He stopped suddenly, and the triumphant grin upon his face changed to a thoughtful expression. "'If he doesn't run away—' he said, standing quite still, and rubbing his chin slowly with the palm of his hand. "'What if he should give me the slip? He might do that.' But, after a moment's pause, he laughed aloud again, and walked on briskly. "'No, he'll not do that,' he said. "'It won't serve his turn to run away.' While Major Vernon went back to Lisford, Henry Dunbar took his seat at the breakfast-table, with Laura Lady Jocelyn by his side. There was very little more gaiety at the wedding breakfast than there had been at the wedding. Everything was very elegant, very subdued, and aristocratic. Silent footmen glided noiselessly backwards and forwards behind the chairs of the guests. Champagne, Moselle, Hock, and Burgundy sparkled in shallow glasses that were shaped like the broad leaf of a water-lily. Dresden china shepherdesses, in the centre of the oval table, held up their chintz-patterned aprons, filled with some forced strawberries that had cost about half a crown apiece. Smirking shepherds supported open-work baskets laden with tiny Algerian apples, china oranges, and big purple hothouse grapes. The bride and bridegroom were very happy, but theirs was a subdued and quiet happiness that had little influence upon those around them. The wedding breakfast was a very silent meal, for the face of the giver of the feast was as gloomy as the sky above Maudsley Abbey, and every now and then, in awkward pauses of the conversation, the pattering of the incessant raindrops sounded upon the windows. At last the breakfast was finished. A knife had been cunningly inserted in the outer wall of the splendid cake, and a few morsels of the rich interior, which looked like a kind of portable Day and Martin, had been eaten by one of the bridesmaids. Laura Jocelyn rose, and left the table attended by the three young ladies. Elizabeth Madden was waiting in the bride's dressing-room, with Lady Jocelyn's travelling-dress laid in state upon a big sofa. She kissed her young miss, and cried over her a little, before she was equal to begin the business of the toilette and then the voices of the bridesmaids broke loose, and there was a pleasant buzz of congratulation, which beguiled the time until Laura was exchanging her bridal costume for a long, rustling dress of dove-coloured silk, a purple velvet cloak, trimmed and lined with sable, and a miraculous fabric of pale pink araphane and starry jasmine blossoms, which the Parisian milliner facetiously entitled a bonnet. She went downstairs presently in this rich attire, 
looking like a russian empress in all the glory of her youth and beauty the travelling carriage was standing at the door arthur lovell and mr dunbar were in the hall with the two clergymen laura went up to her father to bid him good-bye it will be a long time before we see each other again papa dear she said in tones that were only loud enough for mr dunbar to hear say god bless you once more before i go her head was on his breast and her face lifted up towards his own as she said this the banker looked straight before him with a forced smile upon his face that was little more than a nervous contraction of the muscles about the lips i will give you something better than my blessing laura he said aloud i have given you no wedding present yet but i have not forgotten the gift i mean to present to you will take some time to prepare i shall give you the handsomest diamond necklace that was ever made in england i shall buy the diamonds myself and have them set according to my own design the bridesmaids gave a little murmur of delight laura pressed the speaker's cold hand i don't want any diamonds papa she whispered i only want your love mr dunbar did not make any response to that entreating whisper there was no time for any answer perhaps for the bride and bridegroom had to catch an appointed train at shorncliffe station which was to take them on the first stage of their continental journey and in the bustle and confusion of their hurried departure the banker had no opportunity of saying anything more to his daughter but he stood in the gothic porch watching the departing carriage with a kind of mournful tenderness in his face i hope that she will be happy he muttered to himself as he went back to the house heaven knows i hope she may be happy he did not stop to make any ceremonious adieu to his guests but walked straight to his own apartments people were accustomed to his strange manners and were very indulgent towards his foibles arthur lovell and the three bridesmaids lingered a little in the blue drawing-room the melvilles were to drive home to their father's house in the afternoon and dora mcmahon was going with them she was to stay at their father's house a few weeks and was then to go back to her aunt in scotland but i am to pay my darling laura an early visit at jocelyn's rock she said when arthur made some inquiry about her arrangements that has been all settled the ladies and the young lawyer took an afternoon tea together before they left maudsley and were altogether very sociable not to say merry it was upon this occasion that arthur lovell for the first time in his life observed that dora mcmahon had very beautiful brown eyes and rippling brown hair and the sweetest smile he had ever seen except in one lovely face which was like the splendour of the noonday sun and seemed to extinguish all lesser lights the carriage was announced at last and mr lovell had enough to do in attending to the three young ladies and the stowing away of all those bonnet-boxes and shawls and travelling-bags and desks and dressing-cases and odd volumes of books and umbrellas parasols and sketching portfolios which are the peculiar attributes of all female travellers and then when all was finished and he had bowed for the last time in acknowledgment of those friendly becks and wreathed smiles which greeted him from the carriage window till it disappeared in the curve of the avenue 
Arthur Lovell walked slowly home, thinking of the business of the day. And then, when all was finished, and he had bowed for the last time in acknowledgment of those friendly becks and wreathed smiles which greeted him from the carriage window till it disappeared in the curve of the avenue, Arthur Lovell walked slowly home, thinking of the business of the day. Laura was lost to him for ever. The dreadful grief which had so long brooded darkly over his life had come down upon him at last, and the pang had not been so insupportable as he had expected it to be. "'I never had any hope,' he thought to himself, as he walked along the sodden road between the gates of Maudsley and the old town that lay before him. "'I never really hoped that Laura Dunbar would be my wife.' John Lovell's house was one of the best in the town of Shorncliffe. It was a queer old house, with a sloping roof and gable ends of solid oak, adorned here and there by grim devices carved by a skilful hand. It was a large house, but low and straggling, and unpretending in its exterior. The red light of a fire was shining in a wainscoted chamber, half sitting-room, half library. The crimson curtains were not yet drawn across the diamond-paned window. Arthur Lovell looked into the room as he passed, and saw his father sitting by the fire with a newspaper at his feet. There was no need to bolt doors against thieves and vagabonds in such a quiet town as Shorncliffe. Arthur Lovell turned the handle of the street door and went in. The door of his father's sitting-room was ajar, and the lawyer heard his son's step in the hall. "'Is that you, Arthur?' he asked. "'Yes, father,' the young man answered, going into the room. "'I want to speak to you very particularly. I suppose this wedding at Maudsley Abbey has put all serious business out of your head.' "'What serious business, father?' "'Have you forgotten Lord Herriston's offer?' "'The offer of the appointment in India?' "'Oh, no, father, I have not forgotten. Only—only only what?' I have not been able to decide. As he spoke, Arthur Lovell thought of Laura Dunbar. No, she was Laura Jocelyn now. It was a hard thing for the young man to think of her by that new name. Would it not be better for him to go away, to put immeasurable distance between himself and the woman he had loved so dearly? Would it not be better and wiser to go away? And yet, what if by so doing he turned his back upon another chance of happiness? What if a lesser star than that which had gone down in the darkness might now be rising, dim and distant, in the pale grey sky? There is no reason that I should decide in a hurry, the young man said presently. Lord Herriston told you that I might take twelve months to think about his offer. He did answered john lovell but half of the time is gone and i've had a letter from lord herriston by this afternoon's post he wants your decision immediately for a connection of his own has applied to him for the appointment he still holds to his promise and will give you the preference but you must make up your mind at once do you wish me to go to india father I wish you to go to India? Of course not, my dear boy, unless your own ambition takes you there. Remember, you are an only son. 
you have no occasion to leave this place you will inherit a very good practice and a comfortable fortune i thought that you were ambitious and that shorncliffe was too narrow a sphere for your ambition or else i should never have entertained any idea of this indian appointment and you will not be sorry if i remain in england sorry no indeed i shall be very glad do you suppose when a man has only one son a handsome clever high-minded young fellow whose presence is like sunshine in his father's gloomy old house do you think the father wants to get rid of the lad if you do think so you must have a very small idea of parental affection then i'll refuse the appointment father god bless you my boy exclaimed the lawyer the letter to lord herriston was written that night and arthur lovell resigned himself to a perpetual residence in that quiet town within a mile of which the towers of jocelyn's rock crowned the tall cliff above the rushing waters of the avon mr dunbar had given all necessary directions for the reception of his shabby friend the major was ushered at once to the tapestried room where the banker was still sitting at the dinner-table he had that meal laid upon a round table near the fire and the room looked a very picture of comfort and luxury as major vernon went into it fresh from the black foggy night and the leafless avenue where the bare trunks of the elms looked like gigantic shadows looming through the obscurity the major's eyes were almost dazzled by the brightness of that pleasant chamber this man was a reprobate but he had begun life as a gentleman he remembered such a room as this long ago across a dreary gulf of forty ill-spent years the sight of this room brought back the memory of a pretty lamp-lit parlour with an old man sitting in a high-backed easy-chair a genial matron bending over her work two fair-faced girls a favourite mastiff stretched full length upon the hearth and last of all a young man at home from college yawning over a sporting newspaper weary to death of all the simple innocent delights of home sick of the companionship of gentle sisters the love of a fond mother and wishing to be back again at the old uproarious wine-parties the drunken orgies the card-playing and prize-fighting the extravagance and debauchery of the bad set in which he was a chief the major gave a profound sigh as he looked round the room but the melancholy shadow on his face changed into a grim smile as he glanced from the tapestried walls and curtained window with a great indian jar of hot-house flowers standing upon an inlaid table before it and filling the room with a faint perfume of jasmine and almond to the figure of henry dunbar it's comfortable said major vernon to say the least of it it's very comfortable and with a balance of half a million or so at one's bankers or in one's own bank which is better still perhaps one is not so badly off eh mr dunbar sit down and eat one of those birds answered the banker i'll talk to you by and by the major obeyed his friend he unwound three or four yards of dingy woollen stuff from his scraggy throat turned down the poodle collar pulled his chair close to the table squared his brows and began business 
he made very light of a brace of partridges and a bottle of sparkling moselle when the table had been cleared and the two men left alone together major vernon stretched his long legs upon the hearth-rug plunged his hands deep down in his trousers pockets and gave a sigh of satisfaction and now said mr dunbar filling his glass from the starry crystal claret jug what is it that you want to say to me stephen valance or major vernon or whatever ridiculous name you may call yourself what is it you've got to say i'll tell you that in a very few words answered the major quietly i want to talk to you about the man who was murdered at winchester some months ago the banker's hand lost its steadiness the neck of the claret jug knocked against the thin lip of the glass and shivered it into half a dozen pieces you'll spill your wine said major vernon i'm very sorry for you if your nerves are no better than that when major vernon that night left his friend he carried away with him half a dozen cheques for different amounts making in all two thousand pounds upon that private banking account which mr dunbar kept for himself in the house of dunbar dunbar and balderby it was after midnight when the banker opened the hall door and passed out with the major upon the broad stone flags under the gothic porch there was no rain now but it was very dark and the north-easterly winds were blowing amongst the leafless branches of giant oaks and elms shall you present those cheques yourself henry dunbar asked as the two men were about to part uh, yes i think so dress yourself decently then before you do so said the banker they'd wonder what dealings you and i could have together if you were to show yourself in st gundolph lane in your present costume my friend is proud exclaimed the major with a mock tragic accent he is proud and he despises his humble dependent good night said mr dunbar rather abruptly it's past twelve o'clock and i'm tired to be sure you're tired do you do you sleep well asked major vernon in a whisper there was no mock solemnity in his tone now the banker turned away from him with a muttered oath the light of a lamp suspended from the groined roof of the porch shone upon the two men's faces henry dunbar's countenance was overclouded by a black frown and was by no means agreeable to look upon but the grinning face of the major the thin lips wreathed into a malicious smile the small black eyes glittering with a sinister light looked like the face of a mephistopheles good night repeated the banker turning his back upon his friend and about to re-enter the house major vernon laid his bony fingers upon henry dunbar's shoulder and stopped him before he could cross the threshold you've given me two thou he said that's liberal enough to start with but i'm an old man i'm tired of the life of a vagabond and i want to live like a gentleman not as you do of course that's out of the question it isn't everybody that has the good luck to be a millionaire like henry dunbar but i want a bottle of claret with my dinner a good coat upon my back and a five-pound note in my pocket constantly you must do as much as that for me eh dear boy i don't refuse to do it do i asked henry dunbar impatiently 
I should think that what you've got in your pocket already is a pretty good beginning. My dear fellow, it's a stupendous beginning, exclaimed Major Vernon. It's a princely beginning. It's a Napoleonic beginning. But that tooth-ow isn't meant for a blind, is it? It's not to be the beginning, middle, and the end. You're not going to do the gentle bolt, eh? What do you mean? You're not going to run away. You're not going to renounce the pomps and vanities of this wicked world and make an early expedition across the herring-pond, eh, friend of my soul? Why should I run away? asked Henry Dunbar sternly. That's the very thing I say myself, dear boy. Why should you? A wise man doesn't run away from landed estates and fine houses and half a million of money. But when you broke that claret glass after dinner, it struck me somehow that you were, shall I venture the word, rather nervous. Nervous people do all manner of things. Give me your word that you're not going to bolt, and I'm satisfied. I tell you I have no such idea in my mind, Mr. Dunbar answered with increasing impatience. Will that do? It will, dear boy. Your hand upon it. What a cold hand you've got. Take care of yourself, and once more, good night. You're going to London? Yes, to cash the cheques, and make a few business arrangements. Mr. Dunbar bolted the great door as the footsteps of his friend the Major died away upon the gravelled walk, which had been quickly dried by the frosty wind. The banker had dismissed his servants at ten o'clock that night, so there was nobody to wait upon him or to watch him when he went back to the tapestried room. He sat by the low fire for a little time, thinking, with a settled gloom upon his face, and drinking burgundy out of a tumbler. Then he went to bed, and the light of the night-lamp, shining upon his face as he slept, showed it distorted by strange shadows that were not altogether the shadows of the draperies above his head. Major Vernon walked briskly down the long avenue leading to the lodge gates. Two thou is comfortable,' he muttered to himself, "'very satisfactory for a first go-in at the gold diggings. But I should expect my California to produce a little more than that before we close the shaft and retire upon the profits of the speculation. I think my friend is safe. I don't think he'll run away, but I shall keep my eye upon him nevertheless.' The human eye is a great institution, and I shall watch, my friend. In spite of a natural eagerness to transform those oblong slips of paper, the cheques signed with the well-known name of Henry Dunbar, into the still more convenient and flimsy paper-circulating medium dispensed by the old lady in Threadneedle Street, or the yellow coinage of the realm, Major Vernon did not seem in any very great hurry to leave Lisford. A great many of the Lisfordians had seen the shabby stranger take his seat in Henry Dunbar's carriage, side by side with the great banker. This fact became universally known throughout the parish of Lisford and two neighbouring parishes, before the shadows of night came down upon the day of Laura Dunbar's wedding and the Major was respected accordingly. He was shabby, certainly, queer about the heels of his boots, 
and very mangy with regard to the poodle collar his hat was more shiny than was consistent with the hat manufacturing interest his bony hands were red and bare and only one miserable mockery of a glove dangled between his thumb and finger as he swaggered along the village street but he had been seen riding in henry dunbar's carriage and from that moment he had become invested with romantic interest he was a reduced gentleman who had seen better days or he was a miser perhaps an eccentric individual who wore shabby boots and shiny hats for his own love and pleasure people paid respect therefore to the stranger at the rose and crown and touched their hats to him as he went in and out and were glad to answer any questions he chose to put to them as he loitered about the village he contrived to find out a good deal in this way about things in general and the habits of henry dunbar in particular the banker had given his shabby acquaintance a handful of sovereigns for present use as well as the cheques and the major was able to live upon the best the rose and crown could afford and pay liberally for all he consumed i find the warwickshire air agrees with me remarkably well he said to the landlord as he sat at breakfast in the bar-parlour upon the second day after his interview with henry dunbar and if you know of any snug little box in the neighbourhood that would suit a lonely old bachelor with a comfortable income and nobody to help him spend it why i really should have a very great inclination to take it and furnish it the landlord scratched his head and reflected for a few minutes then he slapped his leg with a sounding and triumphant slap i know the very thing as would suit you major vernon he said the major had assumed the name of vernon as agreed upon between himself and henry dunbar the very thing repeated the landlord you might say it had been made to order like that a sale comes off next thursday mr grogson the shorncliffe auctioneer will sell at eleven o'clock precisely the furniture and lease of the snuggest little box in these parts woodbine cottage it's called a sweet pretty little place as was the property of old admiral manders the admiral died in the house and having been a bachelor and his money having gone to distant relatives the lease and furniture of the cottage will be sold but i should think added the landlord gravely looking rather doubtfully at his guest as he spoke i should think the lease and furniture pictures and plate will fetch a matter of eight hundred to a thousand pound and perhaps you mightn't care to go to that the landlord could not refrain from glancing furtively at the white and shining aspect of the cloth that covered the sharp knees of his customer which were exactly under his eyes as the two men sat opposite to each other beside the snug little round table you mightn't care to go to that price he repeated as he helped himself to about three-quarters of a pound of cold ham the major lifted his bristly eyebrows with a contemptuous twitch if the cottage suits me he said i don't mind a thousand for it to-day's saturday i shall run up to town to-morrow or monday morning to settle a bit of business i've got on hand and come back here in time to attend the sale 
my wife and me was thinking of going sir the landlord answered with unwonted reverence in his voice and if it was agreeable we could drive you over in a four-wheel shay woodbine cottage is about a mile and a half from here and little better than a mile from maudsley abbey there's a copper coal scuttle of the old admiral's as my wife has got rather a fancy for but perhaps if you was to make a hoffer previous to the sale the property might be disposed of as it stands by private contract i'll see about that answered major vernon i'll stroll over to shorncliffe this morning and look in upon mr grogson uh, grogson i think you said was the auctioneer's name yes sir peter grogson and very much looked up to he is and a warm man folks do say his offices is in shorncliffe high street sir next door but two from mr lovell's the solicitors and not more than half a dozen yards from st gwendolen's church major vernon as he now chose to call himself walked from lisford to shorncliffe he was a very good walker and indeed had become pretty well used to pedestrian exercise in the course of long weary trampings from one race-course to another when he was so far down on his luck as to be unable to pay his railway fare the frost had set in for the first time this year so the roads were dry and hard once more and the sound of horses hoofs and rolling wheels the jingling of bells the occasional barking of a noisy sheep-dog and sturdy labourers voices calling to each other on the high-road travelled far in the thin frosty air the town of shorncliffe was very quiet to-day for it was only on market-days that there was much life or bustle in the queer old streets and major vernon found no hindrance to the business that had brought him from lisford he went straight to mr grogson the auctioneer and from that gentleman heard all particulars respecting the pending sale at woodbine cottage the major offered to take the lease at a fair price and the furniture as it stood by valuation all i want is a comfortable little place that i can jump into without any trouble to myself major vernon said with the air of a man of the world i like to take life easily if you can honestly recommend the place as worth seven or eight hundred pounds i'm willing to pay that money for it down on the nail i'll take it at your valuation if the present owners are agreeable to sell it on those terms and i'll pay a deposit of a couple of hundred or so on tuesday afternoon to show that my proposition is a bona fide one a little more was said and then mr grogson pledged himself to act for the best in the interests of major vernon consistently with his allegiance to the present owners of the property the auctioneer had been at first a little doubtful of this tall shabby stranger in the napless dirty white beaver and the mangy poodle collar but the offer of a deposit of two hundred pounds or so gave a different aspect to the case there are always eccentric people in the world and appearances are very apt to be deceptive there was a confident air about the major which seemed like that of a man with a balance at his bankers the major went back to the rose and crown ate a comfortable little dinner which he had ordered before setting out for shorncliffe paid his bill 
and made all arrangements for starting by the first train for london on the following morning it was nearly ten o'clock by the time he had done this but late as it was major vernon put on his hat turned his poodle collar up about his ears and went out into lisford high street there was scarcely one glimmer of light in the street as the major walked along it he took the road leading to maudsley abbey and walked at a brisk pace heedless of the snow which was still falling thick and fast he was covered from head to foot with snow when he stopped before the stone porch and rang a bell that made a clanging noise in the stillness of the night he looked like some grim white statue that had descended from its pedestal to stalk hither and thither in the darkness the servant who opened the door yawned undisguisedly in the face of his master's friend tell mr dunbar that i shall be glad to speak to him for a few minutes the major said making as if he would have passed into the hall mr dunbar left the habby hoppers of a hour ago the footman answered with supreme hauteur but he left a message for you in case you was to come the period of his absence is uncertain and if you wants to communicate with him you was to please to wait till he come back major vernon pushed aside the servant and strode into the hall the doors were open and through two or three intermediate rooms the major saw the tapestried chamber dark and empty there was no doubt that henry dunbar had given him the slip for the time at least but did the banker mean mischief was there any deep design in this sudden departure that was the question i'll write to your master the major said after a pause what's his london address mr dunbar left no address <laughs> that's no matter i can write to him at the bank good night major vernon stalked away through the snow the footman made no response to his parting civility but stood watching him for a few moments and then closed the door with a bang if that's a specimen of your hingen acquaintances i don't think much of hinger or hingen society but what can you expect of a nation as insults the gentleman who waits behind his employer's chair at table by calling him a kitten muncher end of chapter twenty five recording by nick whitley purley greater london